Uh, Heavenly Father, as we try to wrap up Romans 11 today uh, and look at Paul's theology of, of what the end will be like, um, help us to have a good introduction to this topic, and we pray that you would give us minds to understand the text. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the, um, what, we were, what we're kind of broaching, um, you guys know that there's different fields of theology, um, and I, I haven't always given you the, the exact term for it, but um, one field of theology that we will be talking about a lot as the semester goes on is eschatology, um, which is the study of, some people will say like study of last things, um, that's kind of how I prefer to do it. If I, if I say the study of the end times, that usually puts in your mind like, oh, you know, right before Jesus comes back. Um, eschatology should be a broader field. Um, so it's the study of the last things. Um, whenever we're studying eschatology, we're, um, we're, we're, we're talking about fu- largely future stuff, though. Um, and so in Romans 11, Paul is asking uh, a question about eschatology, about what is to take place about the future, and that question is, does Israel have any sort of a future and hope? We have been looking at chapters 9 and 10, where Paul is addressing this question that the Jewish Christians have, um, has God's promise failed? We don't really see many Jewish converts, and we've, we've talked about how he answers that question. He transitions in chapter 11 to start asking the question, though, uh, does the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, have any sort of a future hope of, of salvation? Will there be any sort of a revival, acceptance of Jesus and the gospel? What is to come for the nation of Israel? And yesterday um, on the board, I, I made a couple of charts um, where Paul kind of outlines what his answer is going to be. And in verse 12, He says, the trespass of Israel brought riches to the world. Their failure to accept the gospel brought riches to the Gentiles. We talked about how that happened. Uh, Where was the gospel preached first? Over and over and over again, where is the gospel first preached? Synagogues. Synagogues. The Jews reject it. So in order to found a church in the city, the apostles then move to the Gentiles. The gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Greek. And so the failure of the Jews to accept the gospel has meant riches for the Gentiles. He also says, a little bit further down in verse 15, the rejection of the gospels by the Israelites has meant reconciliation for the Gentiles. It means that they've heard the gospel and they've gotten right with God. The failure of the Jews to convert has brought the gospel in its fullness to the Gentiles. It's brought blessing to them. And Paul then says, if that's true, if their failure, if their shortcoming, if if their rejection has been good for the Gentiles, how much better will their full inclusion be? How much better will it be whenever they do believe? And he says that that will mean life from the dead. When do Christians receive life from the dead? When do our bodies come back to life? Jesus' second coming. So, right now... As Paul is writing this letter in the first century, he's saying right now, the Jews have largely rejected the gospel. And right now, the Gentiles are being saved. But he looks to the future and he says there is a day coming when the Jews will accept the gospel. And whenever that happens, it will mean life from the dead. Paul links very tightly here. 
the conversion of the Jews to Christianity with the second coming of Christ. The Jews convert, and then the resurrection occurs. Christ comes a second time, and the resurrection occurs. So in Paul's mind, as he's thinking about what is to take place in the future, one of the signs that the second coming of Christ is very, very near is that there will be a mass revival among the Jews as they turn to Christ. Now, um, chapter 11, Paul starts to use an analogy to kind of summarize his entire argument. He's been talking about... um, All the way back in chapter 9, how not everyone who is of Israel is really of Israel, and we walked through that. Um, He's going to bring back some some strands from that argument. But in chapter 11, verse 17, he starts to use an analogy. And um, you guys have already read chapter 11, so I'm basically just going to summarize Paul's point here. And and then I'll kind of read his conclusion. Um, It's it's a little bit of a wordy paragraph. It's a little bit hard to work through, so I'm going to draw it on the board kind of work you through his ideas, okay? Paul starts off, and, and you guys know that I'm a great artist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, we're good on that. Mm-hmm. Paul starts off, and he says the way to think about all of this stuff with, with Israel and God's plan is he says we're going to use a metaphor. We're going to use an analogy of an olive tree. And look, you guys all just giggled. Not a one of you knows what an olive tree looks like. None of you do. None of you do. And, if, and you could lie and say that you do, and I won't believe you. So you're going to laugh at that picture. You don't know how accurate it is. You're just being a jerk. So uh, Paul says we're going we're gonna to think about this as, as an olive tree, though. All right? And um, the olive tree in Romans 11 represents God's people. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, who was that? Israel. Israel, the Jews. We'll just say Israel. Um, all right? Israel was largely that olive tree. Paul says, over time, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, something has happened, though. Some of the branches, all right? So the olive tree represents God's people. The branches are going to represent individuals. He says, over time, it became clear that some of the branches weren't bearing fruit. That would be another way of saying what? Some of the, some of the people were not Believing. believers, right? So over time, all right, we, you have this olive tree, Israel, and over time, some of the branches weren't bearing fruit. Some of them were unbelieving branches, all right? Old Testament, who would be an unbelieving branch? Person who was part of Israel but didn't actually believe. Ahab, Ahab Saul, all right? And so whenever uh, some of you guys have done gardening or farming or something like that in the past, probably, what do you have to do to branches that don't bear fruit? Cut them. You have to cut them because you don't want them getting nutrients and robbing the fruitful branches, all right? So Paul says over time some of these branches didn't bear fruit, So what God did is he cut them away. He bundled them up. So, unfruitful branches, that would be unbelievers. 
all right? These branches over here, we're gonna put little olives on them. These are fruitful. And the fruitful branches would represent who? The believers. Believers. Now, Paul then makes a really interesting point. Um, any of you guys know what grafting is in horticulture? Yeah. That's such a weird word. I hate that word. What, what is grafting? It's when you take one part of the plant and add it to another part of the plant that it's not originally from. Yeah. Did you hear that? You take one part of a plant and you add it to another part, another plant that it's not originally from. You guys, have you guys ever done like a science experiment with that before or seen that in Miss Wood's class or anything? All right. Well, did you know that that is something that you can actually do? So basically, um, what, what Paul does now is he says, now we're going to think about another olive tree. Um, but this one hasn't been cultivated. It's not been in a garden anywhere. It's a wild olive shoot. Wild olive tree. Um, since it's not been in a garden anywhere, has it been very well taken care of? No. Uh, if, since it's not been in a garden anywhere, will it be very taken care of in the future? Probably not. Probably not. But this wild olive shoot has a few branches that, guess what? Have a lot of olives on it. So Paul says what God has done is he's taken these branches away and he's grafted them in to his olive tree. Uh, what do you think these branches represent? The Gentiles? Yeah. Gentiles who have what? Yep, Gentiles who have faith. So, notice that Paul is actually making a, a, a fairly pertinent argument here. Like, this, this is kind of a nice analogy, whatever, okay? But it's actually a pretty helpful argument for the point that he's been trying to make. The big question in Romans 9 through 11 is, has God been unfaithful to Israel. He said that he would be our God and we would be his people. And now it looks like very few of the Jews are converting. And Paul makes this very fascinating argument here. What are these Gentiles being grafted into? Huh? The Jews, the Israelites tree? Yeah, the one people of God in the Old and New Testament. You know, Paul is saying there's not really two people of God. It's not that there's Israel and there's the church, or that there's the Jews and there's the Gentiles who, who have believed. There's not two people of God. There's one people of God. The true Israel. The true children of Abraham. That would make up of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and all of them who believed in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Me and you. So, whenever we ask the question, has God's promise to Israel failed, we need to make sure that we're rightly defining Israel. Because those that are really Abraham's offspring, what do they have? What do they do if they're really Abraham's children? They have faith. They have faith. And 
God promised Abraham that he would be the father of what? Many nations. So for that promise to come true, guess who has to become part of his family? Other nations. Other nations, Gentiles. And they have. Israel is the family of Abraham. And we're not being saved apart from being the family of Abraham. In fact, whenever Gentiles get saved, God's just making Abraham's family bigger. He's making him the father of many nations. We're being adopted or grafted in. So it's not that God has all of a sudden replaced the Jews with the Gentiles. It's not that all of a sudden the church has replaced Israel or any of that. Instead, what, there's no like re- replacement idea here. Instead, the point that Paul is making is that God is being faithful to Abraham and the promises he made to Abraham. Many nations, people from many nations are becoming part of Abraham's family and are becoming part of the true spiritual Israel. And we're not marked by ethnicity. We're marked by walking in the footsteps of our father. And if we walk in the footsteps of our father, then we are his legitimate true children. And we've been grafted in and adopted into that family. So there is a sense in which Paul could answer the question, has God been unfaithful to Abraham's family and the promises he made to Abraham by saying, absolutely not, because literally everyone who's ever been saved has become part of Abraham's family. So, um, one of the kind of hard things that we have to do in this text, though, is we have to recognize that Paul uses the term Israel in a couple different senses. There's a sense, like here, in this argument, where Israel basically just equals believers. All right? If you are a believer, you're part of the true spiritual Israel, you're part of Abraham's family. In other portions of the text, like earlier, whenever we were talking about how the Jews have largely rejected the gospel, and that's brought blessing to the Gentiles, but then they'll accept the gospel, and that'll bring even greater blessing. Whenever we're talking about that, you recognize that he's using the term Israel or using the term Jew very differently to talk about the ethnic Jew, the ethnic Israelite. And whenever we're saying that there is a future for Israel, we're talking about that ethnic group, that nation. And Paul does say, even though all of this is true, he says there is a future for those physically descended from Abraham as well. There will be a revival among them. Okay, so pause right here. That's a lot of information. You guys track in with him, though? All right. You sure? So what are the two things that Israel can kind of mean in this passage? Believers or, or Jews, those physically descended, right? Um, okay. You understand Paul's argument? You guys, like, seriously, if you have questions, this is a really good time to pause and be like, hey... I need you to repeat something you went too fast or something like that. You guys sure you're good? I will say, um, I think that this is pretty clearly what Paul's getting at. Um, I've, I've taught this before, and people have felt like it's very controversial. And I don't really, I don't really get that. Um, because I... I I mean, we've walked through the scriptures enough and we've looked at the promises to Abraham enough and I think that this is pretty, pretty clearly how, how it's being used. But uh, yeah, just, just so you know, there have been people who've been like, hmm, I don't know. You're kind of persnickety about it. Yeah. What's controversial about it? I mean, everything's already there. 
Some people feel like I'm, whenever I say this, that I'm, I'm basically saying that the church has replaced Israel or something along those lines, which really is not what I'm saying. All, all I'm saying is Paul is making the case that there's one people of God, Abraham's family, and Gentiles who believe are grafted into that family, right? Um, they, they're adopted into that family by their faith. Um, I think some people hear that and, and think that, like, I am trying to say that, that there's not a future for ethnic Israel or anything like that, which I'm, I'm not saying. I'm actually saying the complete opposite, but um, I don't know. I wonder if people just misunderstand me, which is why I'm wanting to make sure there are no questions here. So, um, I'm going to read the paragraph where he uses the olive tree analogy, and now that it's up on the board, maybe you guys can kind of track with him a little bit better, all right? It picks up in verse 17. Um, He says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot. So he's talking to the Gentiles. He says, some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant towards the branches. If you... If you are, remember that it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So basically he's saying to the Gentiles, you can't be arrogant toward the Jews. You can't feel like you're better than them. They're the root. They're the ones who had the covenants and the promises and all that stuff. You know, they're, they're Abraham's family that now you're grafted into. So you can't look down on them. You can't feel like you're better than them. Verse 19 Then you Gentiles will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul says, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. Remember earlier in Romans, faith and boasting, do they go together? Paul says in Romans 3, the rule of faith excludes any boasting. Because I can't look at the works of the law and say, I kept these, so now I'm saved. The fact that I'm saved by faith alone means that I can't pat myself on the back and, and feel very proud of myself. It's, I have to recognize that salvation has come to me as a gift. So Paul says, those branches were broken off because of unbelief. You stand fast through faith, so don't be proud and don't boast. Because if you're proud and you're boasting, that doesn't go well with faith. And if you're proud and you're boasting and that doesn't go well with faith, guess what might happen to you? You might get cut off too. They could get cut off. What makes you think you can? That's basically what Paul says. You hear how that's kind of, you know, helping him get over, help the Gentiles get over this pride issue. Verse 21, he makes this point more explicit. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. That's kind of the shortcoming of this argument, by the way. Um, Once you, in horticulture, cut off branches from this tree these branches that are dead can they go back no but paul says if they stop being unbelieving and they have faith god is the god of miracles and he can graft them back in again he can give them life again can god raise the dead 
He can. So he can give life to those dead branches. Verse 24, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive shoot and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. How is Israel being used in that verse? Is that all believers or the ethnic group? Ethnic Ethnic group, because a partial hardening has come upon them. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, what does until mean? There's a partial hardening on Israel until, what's going to happen to that partial hardening? It'll It'll end. There's a partial hardening on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So here we're getting to this idea, is there a future for Israel? What's Paul's answer once again? There is. All right, here's Paul's kind of historical outline. Right now, partial hardening on Israel. That's going to come to an end. When does it come to an end in that verse? We're looking at verse 25. All right, fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What? And it just says the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Um, comes into what? What? What does this comes in refer to? Yeah, I grafted in, right? He's working with his analogy still. So the fullness of the Gentiles is grafted in. They come in. That's a reference to them being what? Believers. Believers, getting saved. All right, so fullness of Gentiles comes in, uh, are saved. And then the partial hardening on Israel lasts until this happens. So after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, what's going to be lifted? The hardening. The hardening. All right, And he says in verse 26, In this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, verse 25, he's just talked about Israel and said a partial hardening is on them. Very next verse, he uses the term Israel again. Is that talking about believers or still talking about the ethnic group? Still the ethnic group. It would still have to be the ethnic group, right? We have to take it in context, right? really important concept is that context determines the meaning of words, right? If a word has multiple meanings, how do you know which meaning is is used? You determine that based on the context, right? So here he says, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. He's just used the term to talk about the ethnic group. So it needs to still be about the ethnic group here. So, partial hardening on Israel, fullness of Gentiles comes in, the partial hardening is lifted, and he uses a big word, all Israel will be saved. And then, looking back at our verses from yesterday, what does Paul anticipate will happen whenever the fullness of of Israel comes in. Whatever Israel 
accepts the gospel, what comes? The second coming. The second coming. What words does he actually use? In verse 15. Life from the dead. All Israel will be saved. And then uh, from verse 15, this is all of these are from verses 25 and 26. But to pair it with verse 15, life from the dead, a reference to the second coming. Now, let's think about this argument for a few moments. Partial hardening has come upon Israel. And that lasts until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then all Israel will be saved. Israel will believe in the gospel. And then after that, life from the dead is given which is always paired with the second coming of Christ. So this is Paul's very basic outline of, and is Paul going to give us more details in other letters? Yes. This is Paul's very basic outline in Romans 11 of the end times. This is all the information he gives right here because he's trying to answer one question. Is there a future for Israel? And his answer is yes. But it's a, It's a future future. It's not an immediate thing that's going to happen. Um, This word for fullness is very interesting. Uh, The Greek word is pleroma. And oftentimes pleroma is translated as like an overflowing. Um, My Greek professor, whenever we came to the... um, vocabulary word pleroma my second semester he said that the um you guys know that there are certain words in english like we have onomatopoeia words right um that like the way that you say them is supposed to kind of sound like they sound so like balk or i don't know what's another one uh huh Oh, that hurt. Um, I busted my knuckle the other day, and I keep forgetting it, and I hit it. And it, uh, oh. um, Yeah, so, so we have like onomatopoeia words, which are sound words. Um, Greek has something that's a little bit similar, but it, they're like sight words. So there are certain words in Greek that whenever they're used, they're supposed to give you a mental image, all right? I don't really know if English has anything kind of like that, but some of you are very visual thinkers, so whenever someone says, like, cake, there's a specific cake that might come into your mind, right, or or something along those lines. The word pleroma, though, is supposed to be a picture word. Whenever you hear this, there, there is an image that's supposed to come into your mind, and it's supposed to be, like, of a fountain overflowing, or, like, if you plugged your sink and you just left it on and the water started billowing over, or what I do sometimes, and I start pouring coffee and I don't really pay attention, and then it overflows the cup. It, it's supposed to be like this overflowing type word. So, whenever Paul says that a pleroma of Gentiles will be grafted in and will be saved, what is Paul predicting? There's an overflowing of Gentiles that will be saved. Um, numerically, what would that mean? 
There's a ton of them. Heaven is busy with them. Um, or the way that you could say it is, you remember that the Gentiles are being grafted into whose family? Abraham's, right? Abraham is promised to be the father of many nations. And notice that it's not just like, you'll be the father of many people who come from many nations. It's not like, you know, one person from Saudi Arabia and one person from Canada and one person from England, but you'll actually be the father of many nations. Or the other way that God makes that promise, Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars of the heaven, which no one can count, and like the dust of the earth, the sand of the sea. Have you ever noticed that God's promise to Abraham, and and we have to interpret this like Paul does. Paul is interpreting Abraham's true children to be believers, right? So those promises to Abraham are promises that there will be what? Tons of children of Abraham. More than can be numbered. Which means that there will be tons of believers. The promises to Abraham are that there will be very, 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 very many Christians. This is picked up on in Revelation chapter 7, where the Apostle John has a vision into heaven, and he sees a multitude that nobody could possibly number or count. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount to enter by the narrow way. Because the way is wide, which leads to destruction. And some people interpret that to mean only a few people are going to get saved. Because only a few people are going to go through the narrow gate. And a lot of people will go to destruction. I don't think that that's quite what Jesus is getting at. Because for you to find that narrow gate that leads to eternal life, who has to show it to you? Christ does. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And does Jesus have the power to show as many people as he wants that narrow gate and to lead them on that way to the Father? He does. And Revelation ends with this picture of an uncountable multitude of people who have been saved. And Abraham's descendants, the true children of Abraham, are like the scars of the heaven and the sand of the sea and the dust of the earth. So, Paul says that there will be an overflowing of Gentiles that come in and get saved. There will be a pleroma of them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think that's why it seems like it's been a really, really long time coming for these promises to be fulfilled. Jesus delights in building his church. And Jesus promises that there will be a pleroma of people that get saved. And Jesus is taking time so that people are born and people grow up and people believe and people get saved so that there will be a lot of Gentiles, a lot of believers who spend eternity, eternal life with him. I think that this text, um, some some people believe that Paul anticipated a very immediate coming of Christ. And I think that for Paul, that was a possibility. I think that in Paul's mind, it was possible that Jesus would return at any moment. 
I think that Paul uh, held all of that with an open hand and believed that Christ could come at any moment and the promises could be fulfilled. And even if Paul didn't understand how all of that could happen, it could happen. But I think in a text like this, we see a little bit of a hint that, that Paul maybe had in his mind some notion of an idea that the second coming wouldn't be as imminent as a lot of people suppose he thought it was. I think in this text we get a hint that, that Paul understood that the second coming would be something a little bit more distant as Jesus built his church and brought a pleroma of people into it. And after this fullness of... Gen- and, and by the way... Um, Does Paul strike you, as we read about him in Acts, does he strike you as optimistic or pessimistic about what the gospel will do in the world? Optimistic. Optimistic. And in this text, optimistic or pessimistic about what the gospel does in the world? Very optimistic. Very optimistic. Um, I struggle with views of eschatology that are like, by the way, the gospel like sort of kind of loses, and at the end there's only like two Christians in the world, and then Jesus comes back and fixes all the problems. Jesus does come back and fix all the problems because there are problems in any generation. Um, I see in scripture a lot more optimism about what the gospel is going to do in the world than that, though. And, And what God is going to accomplish through the church, not because we're all that, but because he's all that. Um, Zachariah says, not by might and not by power, but by the spirit declares the Lord. And, and because the Spirit is empowering the church, I think the gospel, we, we, we have a reason to be optimistic that the gospel will be successful in the world and that a pleroma will come in, an overflowing will come in. Um, but after this overflowing comes in, what is saved? Israel is saved, but what is the word that he uses? All. All. Now, again, context determines meaning. In the context of many passages that we've seen earlier in Romans, what has all meant? Both Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles. Um, We've already established that Israel, in this verse though, is referring to the ethnic group. So would it make sense to interpret this as a, a both word? How is Paul using the word all here? Yeah, I think that he's using it as all the ethnic Jews. There's a great revival that hits the Gentiles as a pleroma of them are saved. And then this revival makes it pale in comparison. The Jews with one accord come and worship the Lord. Huh? I said that right. Oh, So massive amount of Gentiles get saved and then to cap it off massive number of Israelites get saved and then let me read through these verses again and show you how this comes into play in verse 26 and 27 Um, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Israel is saved. And then the deliverer comes from Zion and once for all takes away uncleanness and sin. Has Jesus already taken away our uncleanness and sin? He has. 
But has he done it the way he'll do it one day? We already have our sin taken away, but we do not yet have it taken away like we will one day. We've, we've used that language before, haven't we? Christ will come and sin once and for all will be totally vanquished and taken away when the deliverer comes from Zion. So, um, kind of verses 26 and 27 are hitting on this as, as well. So, this is Paul's idea of what is to happen in the future. We'll fill in some more gaps as we go through, uh, as, as we go through his uh, other letters. Um, but this is his kind of ending argument in taking care of this question. Has God been unfaithful to his promises to Abraham's family? No, because not all Israel is truly Israel. He saved all of Abraham's true children. And Abraham's true children are made up of any who have faith, whether Jew or Gentile. For it's been promised that Abraham will be the father of many nations. And so many have been adopted and grafted into Abraham's family. But even though that's true, we should also remember that Abraham's physical descendants, ethnic Israel, does have a future. God will call them to himself. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in and then this partial hardening on Israel will be lifted. All Israel will be saved and then the deliverer will come from Zion and once for all banish ungodliness from his people. And Paul ends this section with a hymn. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given God a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Tomorrow we will uh, start looking at the ethics that Paul outlines in the last part of his letter. We're going to take the test on Monday. Remember that uh, your reading is going to be due tomorrow. First thing, whenever you come in, uh, you will have a quiz over it. Yes? So, I had a question about that. On the link for each syllabus, for you to do this church website thingy, but then at the bottom of the like three sections that we read, I guess, it says continue reading this other website. Do we have to read the whole big long thing or just the three like little sections it gives us?